Welcome to the Comics Misremembered Podcast with your hosts Jim and John, and here's the opening music. Flapping my arms, I begin to cluck. Look at me, I'm the disc Alright, alright. Hey, welcome back everybody to the Comics Misremembered Podcast. I'm your host Jim. And I am the only host uh, this week. Um, if you turned into the podcast last week, you know that John is uh, ill. He's being he's being treated for cancer. Um, as weeks go on, things change. I originally predicted he would be back probably within two to three weeks, maybe. Uh, he's going through different uh, thera- or different um, prognosis uh, and different uh, treatments, and everything's still going smooth. He's still on the path of recovery, which is good. But it looks like it's going to take a little bit longer than John originally was uh, told or he understood. And so right now, what I'm going to say is John's probably not going to be back for the month of November. But hopefully I can get him uh, remotely like we did one time before on one of these podcasts in the next coming weeks. So hopefully we'll hear from John very soon. Um, But in the meantime, John, take care, keep well, and we'll see you soon. And um, we'll progress on. Now, um, as always, we play a little piece of music before we uh, talk about the subject matter of the Comic Misremembered podcast, which is podcast 285, if you've been keeping track, 285. And I uh, just played a little piece of music. I'm pretty sure, uh, and John usually would take a guess at it because he doesn't, he doesn't listen to it. And I'm pretty sure John wouldn't, would know the name of the song, but probably not know the name of the artist. I'll have to check with him on that. But I'm going to fill you in, oh, avid listener. Uh, I the, uh, the name of the song is Disco Duck, and the name of the artist is Rick Dees. Uh, Rick Dees is not a normal uh, music artist, as you can tell uh, from that song, if you just listen to the, the uh, 10 seconds, 12 seconds of it. Uh, Rick Dees was a radio host. He was a, um, a syndicated radio host in the, in the 70s. Uh, right when disco was popular and he puts out this uh, one song, people go crazy for it, make multiple uh, pressings. It went to number one on the billboard charts uh, of like 76, 77 or something like that. This song, this novelty song was so popular. It blew up on the charts. Not the first time that that's ever happened, but I just want to say like, you know, it just shows you how much cocaine was going around during the disco era uh, that people chose to buy this record and listen to it more than once. Uh, <laughs> which is be beyond me. So why did I p- pick this piece of music? Well, it fits with the uh, the genre and the subject matter we'll be talking about tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking about Howard the Duck, the Marvel comic. Specifically, I'm going to be referring to the uh, 70s uh, when Howard was first introduced into his own uh, comic book series. And we're going to talk about a few issues of it and how the comic went on and 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 a little bit about the creator now uh howard was originally created by writer steve gerber uh and val uh, and the artist val mayerker uh, yeah may mayor mayor rick merrick okay let me try that again i he was created by steve gerber and val mayerick um again marvel was the publisher of, of the time and let's go over, um, let's talk about like what was going on to have Howard be created. So this is the, the 70s. Now, 70s in the comic book scene, 
uh, was beginning to get a little bit more progressive. And in fact, if you look around at what was going on, even in real life, uh, you know, what was going on on the news is uh, we're, we're ending um, Vietnam War. That was happening in the, in the early 70s. Uh, there's women's lib movement, uh, you know, equal pay for women, equal rights for women. That was being uh, pushed even further, uh, started uh, happening during the 70s. So there was a lot of uh, changes going on. It's the kind of the post-coital, uh, post-coital post uh, movement of the sexual revolution. And, uh, and even on, if you look at television at the time, you have shows like um, Archie Bunker or um, All in the Family, which is Archie Bunker. And All in the Family was a very progressive show for the time. It had a curmudgeon uh, main character of Archie Bunker, who was a uh, you know racist uh, person. And through his interactions with his very uh, liberal, and he was also a very uh, Republican too, and through his interactions with his very liberal uh, son-in-law, and um, you know, talking with his wife, uh, who was leaned more kind of liberal than Archie did, uh, he made kind of a, a small strides in becoming a better human uh, through the course of the show. But through that show, uh, you had other uh, progressive shows that were being aired. Uh, so you had the Jeffersons that came out of that, and Sanford and Son came out of that, uh, and Chico and the Man too came out of that show too. Uh, these are all characters that were introduced through All in the Family and then spun off into their own shows. And uh, you may never have heard of these, depending on how old you are. Uh, but the reason why these are all progressive is because, like, um, the Jeffersons, uh, you, you probably have heard of the Jeffersons, I would think. The Jeffersons is uh, was an all-African-American cast. Uh, Sanford and the Man, two main uh, leads of the show were African-American. And Chico and the Man was a, um, was a white and a Hispanic uh, cast, right? I... I didn't watch Chico and the Man <laughs> that much, but I remember the name of the mo the, the show. Um, is that the Freddie Prince show? I can't, yeah, I think that was, right? And, uh, well, I'll, I, I digress from that. But the it, there's a lot of stuff going on on television. I'm just naming one show that spun off a bunch of shows, and uh, and this was a very progressive for the time. It wasn't your Brady Bunch, a whitewashed television show. You know, where did Tigers Lost, Let's Search the Neighborhood kind of show. Uh, these were very more progressive uh, politically, uh, socially. All these ideas are coming out of it. A women's Lib, too, like a, uh, Archie's, uh, his uh, daughter um, was into the women's Lib movement. And so he's got to, he's hearing it from all sides, you know. And uh, so, so there's all this progressive stuff going on. Now, as you know, at this time during the seventies, or uh, comics, the comics were um, kind of watched over by the Comics Code, uh, the Comics Code of America, and they were that was put into place during the fifties. Uh, so the so during the late fifties, sixties, um, comics were kind of like juvenile, uh, not telling stories, uh, just specifically written for children. But now Marvel is starting to push. You know, in the late 60s, they're starting to push their story, trying to get in realistic elements that take place in a real universe, not a made-up name. And now they're trying to push it a little further. So during this time, the uh, Comics Code was being more lax in what they could say that you could publish. So they start publishing kind of more um, mature-themed books. Uh, so we had things like, uh, what was it, um, Luke Cage, a Hero for Hire, came out of that. Uh, we also had Ghost Rider. 
uh, Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, these kind of horror titles that you haven't seen in a while now being pushed out. We're getting more mature storylines. We talked about this before in another podcast, but the Green Arrow, Green Lantern uh, series with De- by this is DC by Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams, where they had they talked about um, Speedy, the who was the sidekick to Green Arrow. He was addicted to heroin and how that went along. Also in Amazing Spider-Man, um, you had Jerry Conway and John Romita. Uh, they wrote the death of Gwen Stacy, killing off of a major character, and how that impacted uh, you know Peter Parker as a hero and also personally because that was his girlfriend at the time. So really mature storylines going on, and this is just like the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of other things going on. Uh, comics are trying to release new comic material and have more than just your your normal white uh, male superhero in there you start to see female um, heroes appear you're starting to see heroes of um, different cultures come in african-american asian all every all these kind of new ideas are trying to be pushed through the 70s so it was a great time to try new ideas out and this is where we're, now we're finally going to get down to uh, talking about howard the duck and how do we do that well we're going to talk about man thing first Let's start. Steve Gerber took over writing duties of Adventure into Fear with issue 11. This is in December 1972. The book featured a popular horror character called Man-Thing. He was a swamp creature that did not talk, but it sensed fear in others. So the tagline of the book was, or specifically for Man-Thing was, whatever knows fear burns at the Man-Thing's touch. Uh, And Gerber found that uh, it would be difficult to tell a story where man, the main protagonist, could not communicate to others in the story. So out of necessity, Gerber created uh, a few clever rules for the man thing. One was he was an empath. This is how he was able to sense fear in others. The other thing he created was uh, the swamp that he lived in was a dimensional connection point, a nexus to all realities, and the man thing was its guardian. Guardian. He could commune with the swamp and teleport beings from other realities to help him with the current problems that he was encountering with each progressive issue. The benefit of bringing other characters in is that they can talk and be the mouthpiece for Man-Thing. Using these newly defined roles for Man-Thing, Gerber had Man-Thing teleport in a warrior, Korek of Cathart, and a wisecracking duck, Howard, to help defeat an evil wizard, Thorg the Netherspawn, uh, making Adventure into Fear, number 19, December 1973, the first appearance of Howard the Duck. Now, Roy Thomas, the editor of Man-Thing at the time, was not a fan of Howard the Duck, so what he asked Gerber to kill the character at the end of the current storyline. Gerber followed his instructions and had Howard fall off the pla- a platform that was um, between realities, and he disappeared into infi- infinity. It was at this time uh, that we, we would see the end of Howard. Or was it? Fans wrote letters to Marvel demanding that Howard be brought back. And so he was for two Man-Thing specials, Giant Size Man-Thing 4 and 5, which came out in May and August of 1975. Confronting such, uh, yeah, confronting such bizarre par- horror parody characters as uh, Garko the Manfrog and Bessie the Hellcow. Fans were demanding more of these limited appearances, um, so they wanted a monthly dose of the Mad Mallard. So eventually, in 1976, 
fans got what they demanded. They got Howard Number 1 hit the stands. And Howard Number 1 was uh, still written by Steve Gerber, and the uh, artwork uh, at the time was was uh, drawn by Frank Werner. Now, we're going to start talking about Howard in just a moment. But uh, as you know, I like to try to wet my whistle uh, between <laughs> long speaking parts. And I usually would, would play the, the this sound effect. But I created a sound effect specifically to help me with these transitions. So whenever uh, I feel I'm getting a little parched, uh, I play, you're going to hear this sound effect. Not a lot, but you're going to hear it. So that, that's I'm out of nowhere. If you just hear that playing, you understand what that's all about. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about, um, you know, we're going to talk about Howard the Duck, but we're going to talk about two things that are really near and dear to my heart. One is uh, funny uh, character comics, and the other one is half-assed interpretations of great philo- philosophical thinkers. This is where the half-assed interpretations come in. Um. Howard the Duck, a lot of people think like um, Howard the Duck was a satire comic, which it was. It, it was it was a satire uh, comic book taking a poke at things that were going on um, in the world in 1976. But what it also was uh, doing is it was a comment um, of Steve Gerber's cynicism uh, at the time of the world and maybe just the comics industry. So <laughs> here's the thing about if you don't know who Steve Gerber is. Um, Steve Gerber, prior to writing comic books, worked in business, and he was an ad copywriter. Uh, so he worked in advertising, and he was going insane uh, writing that. And he was good friends with Roy Thomas. And so he said to, to Roy Thomas, you, do you have any job that could get me out of this ad copywriting? Because I think I'm going to go insane if I stay here. And luckily, he had these kind of writing assignments for um, the adventures into fear. So he, he took the assignment. And, um, and, but also Steve Gerber was a, a well-read man, um, had a great intellect and he tried to apply that to these Howard the Duck comic books. And, uh, so what I'm going to talk about now is absurdity and existentialism. So existentialism is a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the nature of existence by emphasizing experience of the human subject, not merely the thinking subject, but the acting, feeling, living human individual. In the view of existentialism, the individual starting point has been called the existential angst, or variable existential attitude, dread, or a sense of disorientation, confusion, or anxiety in the face of apparently meaningless or absurd world. Existentialism is associated with several 19th and 20th century European philosophers who share an emphasis on the human subject, Despite profine, profound uh, doctrinal differences, many existentialists regard traditional systematic or academic philosophies in style and context as too abstract and remote for concrete human experience. A primary virtue is existential thought through its authenticity. Soren Kierkegaard is generally considered to have been the first existentialist philosopher, though he did not use the term existentialism. I think he's more, they, they call it um, metaphysical uh, at that time. He proposed that each individual, not society or religion, is solely responsible for giving meaning to life and living it passionately and sincerely or authentically. 
The main idea of existentialism during World War II was developed by Jean-Paul Sartre, or uh, Sartre, uh, under the um, influence of Dostoevsky and Martin Hierkegaard, whom he read in a P read in a POW camp and strongly influenced by many uh, disciplines besides philosophy, including theology, drama, 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 art, literature, and psychology. Now let's get to absurdism. In philosophy, the absurd refers to the conflict between human tendency to seek inherent value of meaning in life and the human inability to find any in a purposeless, meaningless, or chaotic or irrational universe. The universe and the human mind do not each separately cause the absurd, but rather the absurd arises by the con contradictory nature of the two existing simultaneously. As a philosophy, absurdism further explores the uh, fundamental, fundamental nature of the absurd and how individuals, one becoming conscious of the absurd, should respond to it. The absurdist philosopher Albert Camus, or Albert Camus, <laughs> but Albert Camus stated that Individuals should embrace the absurd uh, condition of human existence. Absurdism shares some concepts and a common theoretical template with existentialism and nihilism. It is as its origins in the work of the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, uh, with close, uh, who chose to confront the crisis the human face with the absurdity by developing its own existential philosophy. Absurdism is a belief system that was born out of Europe's existential movement and ensued uh, specifically when Camus uh, rejected certain aspects of that philosoph philosophical line of thought and published his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. The aftermath of World War II provided social environment that stimulated absurdist views and allowed for the popular uh, development, specifically in the devastated country of France. Okay, so there is your... Very quick, dirty breakdown of existentialism and absurdity, absurdism. And why do I bring that up? Because absurdism is tackled in the very first issue, even though you may not realize it, of Howard the Duck, number one. Let us take a break before we start delving into that. I need more brain juice now uh, to, to, <laughs> to get through this comic. Uh, and hopefully you're enjoying a nice beverage too. I am going through some, let's see, what did I pick today? Newcastle Brown Ale. Um, one of my favorites. If you've never had it, definitely check it out. Um, hopefully it's available in your area. Let's talk about Howard the Duck, issue number one by Frank Berner. And also Steve Gerber. Howard is stuck in our universe um, of he's stuck in our universe of hairless apes and believes he will never get back to his universe. Seeing the absurdity of his current existence, he decides he's going to end his life by scaling a large tower in the distance. He gets to the tower, but it has no door. He seems to be, it seems to be made out of credit cards. He's able to scale it and get into a window. He climbs in and meets a, a bound red-headed woman who is dressed like Red Sonia in chain, in chain mail and is being attacked by a large dog, or what looks like a large dog. She begs Howard to stop the beast uh, and free her. He is apprehensive about killing the dog, but he tries to lift an axe to protect the woman. Through a series of unfortunate and absurd events, the axe flips out of his hands um, and his flips out of Howard's small hands and cuts a, a rope. 
This brings down a chandelier on top of the beast and kills him. The beast transforms back into a man. How it has killed a werewolf warrior who serves the wizard of the castle, Prorata. Prorata zaps him and knocks him out. Now, uh, if you don't know the term prorata, it means proportionately. It's used in uh, bus business terms, financial terms of like, you know, the... Uh, the dividends will be divided among everybody pro rata, proportionately. Uh, so that's a little fun play if you didn't know that. He awakes dressed like Conan and the uh, red woman, red-headed woman by his side. In confronting him is pro rata, the mad financial wizard. He explains to Howard that he is close to becoming the chief accountant of the universe. All he needs is a jeweled key for his cosmic calculator and he'll complete his plans. He was planning to send the, the werewolf warrior to get the key, but Howard has killed him, so he will have to take his place. Prorata sends the redhead and Howard through a portal to get the key. At the same time, serendipitously, Peter Parker is sent to Cleveland, because that's where they are, by J. Jonah Jameson to take pictures of a talking duck that everybody's talking about. Howard gets the jewel key, but brings back a monster uh, to Earth through the portal. Howard feigns to give the key to Prorata, but throws it off the tower. Spider-Man, happening to be swinging by, sees the commotion on top of the tower and grabs the key. He gets to the top, webs the monster, and asks whose key it is. Prorata poses to strike Spider-Man down with magic to get that key back. Howard sees this and sees an opportunity to push Prorata off the roof, along with himself ending both of their lives. He does. Spider-Man saves Howard but Prorata is not so lucky. Spider-Man ends the story by giving Howard the key and rushing off to stop the monster that he tried to put down. The redhead asks Howard what's next, and he says, I don't know, but I sure could use a cigar. So that was the first issue. Very uh, s s silly. It, they, they, they're all somewhat silly, but this one was probably the most silly of, of the first six issues that we're going to be reading. Um, you, as I talk about the, the other issues, you're going to see that, um, actually the second issue is pretty silly, silly too, but it, as we get through issues one and two, the third and fourth are kind of morality plays and, uh, we'll talk, we'll get into that too. Issue number two, art is still by Frank Brunner. And in fact, before we get into it, you know what time it is? We're going to talk about issue number two now. The second issue starts with Howard playing the role of um, Kill Mallard, fighting in a post-apocalyptic future against an alien Murrux. This is a parody of Marvel's property Kill Raven. In that story, uh, there are um, okay. Wait, so the the story is that the same Martians from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, except they are the second wave of Martians then can acclimate to the bacteria of Earth. That's Killraven. Um, Earth is scorched by the second wave, and there are a small band of freemen that have banded together behind their leader, Killraven, to take back the planet. I think the, the names of the the parody names of the aliens in the Howard uh, Howard universe, the Kill Mallard universe, are Mercs. And I think that's a play on H.G. Wells' uh, time machine, where the Morlocks... It turns out that this is all a dream. Howard wakes up in the apartment of Bev Beverly Switzler. 
on who was the mysterious redhead from the first issue. She explains that she was uh, stuck on the tower for a month after answering a model, uh, an ad model by Prorata. That's how she got in there. She goes on to say that Spider-Man got them out um, by getting them a helicopter and flying them down off the tower. She then took Howard to her apartment. Howard read some of the sci-fi scripts by her roommate, Arthur Winslow, and that is what gave him his nightmares. Then it cuts to Arthur Winslow. Happens to be working as a security guard, that's his real job, in a warehouse as a mysterious object crashes through the warehouse window. It is a turnip, not just any average turnip, but a space turnip that has traveled through the universe and faded its way to Arthur Winslow. The space turnip bestows Winslow uh, with its powers, turning him to the deadly space turnip. Unfortunately, the space turnip is using Winslow to take over the body and understand humans. The space turnip is thwarted and Winslow saved when Howard removes the leafy brain of the space turnip and puts it in an incinerator. Now, what I wanted to read is uh, a passage from this this episode. At the end of the the issue, um, there is a, a kind of acknowledgement to Jim Starlin to help helping writing the script. And I think when um, Winslow asks the space turnip, you know, what what is he? The space turnip gives kind of the soliloquy of uh, the origin of, like, where does the turn come from? And I think this is where Jim Starlin was involved. And it's, uh, this is what it says. I am Felch, the turnip says telepathically, and my race was old when the stars were young. We were bred as an aggressive, dynamic, uh, success-oriented vegetable who overcame the limits of our roots and evolved into space-spanning go-getters, interstellar overachievers. Alas, we met our doom when we failed in our vanity to pick ourselves um, at the first cosmic frost. I am the lone survivor. I have wandered the uh, trackless void for eons in search of more efficient body, suitable for framing my superior intellect in uh, incomparable power. Who are you? Speak, meat being. Trepidatiously, I am Arthur Winslow, author of the collection of old movie stills. I too am alone. For my life, I've been forced to endure a world in which no background music swells when boy meets girl, in which love has been dragged down from the spiritual heights to the uh, crass uh, domain of physical sensation. I stand apart because I dare to believe in the power of what one man can do. The Lone Ranger, the Green Hornet, James Bond, the heroes, the stuff of legends. I long to be that kind of man. And all I can offer the world are fictions of that publishers refuse to even read because heroes have gone out of fashion may i suggest a merger then arthur meet you gain my insight into the universe which has come bore me which has come to bore me whilst i avail myself to the mobility the opposable thumbs and the pleasure pleasures of flesh which you disdain but which are destined to be my form Winslow's eyes glow with anticipation. If I agree to joining, shall we get uh, what it takes to become a hero, a scourge of evil, a defender of common man? Can you lend me the power enough to fulfill my dream? I can lend you that power. Yes, the term affirms. But I demand an option on total control of your body if I deliver. What is the body but a casing for that is truly matters, the eternal soul? I agree with, with your bargain, Winslow proclaims. In the follows of a blinding flash, for a moment, Arthur Winslow 
loses touch with his surrounding of his body and his mind and all his blackness, all is pure white, and then he is one with the turnip. Okay. My uh, my dramatic reading of a comic book panel. Thank you very much. Oh. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, you're not supposed to do that, audience. You're supposed to... No, no, stop. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think that the, uh, the, more applause. I saved you from listening to that that duck sound. Sorry, one more time. Okay. Um. So the the funny thing about that is the um. It's it's kind of it takes on the role of uh, like other known movies, um, like the Puppet Master, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where um Winslow takes on the turnip. And he gets all these soup, these powers, and which he wants to, because he, you know, he's he's wish fulfillment. He wants to fight evil and save the girl. And Beverly is is secretly in love with Beverly. They have some kind of relationship. Um, when Ho- Howard asks Beverly, uh, you know, what is he to you? Is he a boyfriend? And she's like, not quite a boyfriend. I see more of him as like a brother relationship. So, you know, I didn't think that they were, um, you know, that close. But what happens is. The turnip starts taking over Winslow's body and starts um, kind of overriding his thoughts, starts overriding his the mobility of his body. And he goes to Beverly and he picks her up and he's like, I wish to make whoopee with you. And, uh, and then it, it shows how we're trying to chase after them because they're flying away. And he's like, hey, Beverly, come back. And they go into a meadow. And then the next pa- panel, Beverly is like putting her um, uh, blouse back on which is pretty racy for, for a comic book. And she, she goes on to say, like, um, he makes some kind of innuendo uh, about, like, uh, vegetables again. I, I should let's see if I, I can find it. And she just she's like, oh, there you go, being juvenile again. And so I guess they must have had more than just a uh, friendly platonic relationship because she uh, does allow for them uh, to copulate. So <laughs> I just thought that was really that was really strange for a comic book. Um, so let me see if I can find that one bit. Oh yeah, here we go. Would you like to turn over some of my new leaves, Beverly? That's what he says. And she's like, "Oh, the same old naive, du- naive double entendres." Uh, but he's like, "Bev, come back!" And so he's trying to. So then Winslow starts to see that he's losing his humanity. And he will lose his his body um, by allowing the space turnip to stay on his body. So he's trying to get it off, but he can't. He can't remove the helmet. And that's when Howard finally turns up, and he finds out that the turnip has a uh, leafy uh, stem at the top. And he realizes that's where the brain is. It's actually not in the helmet. It's in the, the leafy stem. So he pulls the stem up, and the stem um, starts flying around and says, like, Oh, you're still you're still meat, um, and I can destroy you by smashing your bones. So he tries to smash Howard against these uh, smokestacks, and but Howard's like he's part duck, and he's able to manipulate and maneuver, and he gets it, the um, stem to mistakenly fly over one of the flames out of the smokestacks, and that's how the the space the deadly space turnip gets destroyed. So very very funny, uh, very funny, very interesting. Again. This is 1976. Uh, these are not new concepts, but these are like r- really, I think, funny concepts. 
the and the other thing I started as I'm reading this specific issue, issue number two. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen the the. How many of you listening have seen the Howard the Duck movie, which was made by George Lucas, written by George Lucas too. And if you can remember the concept of the movie, is um, what did I write down here? It he Howard is brought to Earth by accident through an experimental device called the laser um, spectroscope, which was tested by a doctor Walter Jennings. Unbeknownst to Jennings, he has brought over a second alien to Earth, which is incubated in him, called the Dark Overlord of the Universe. And then the rest of the movie is trying to get Howard, uh, you know, trying to understand how did Howard get into our world, and then push him. Uh, they find out that it's this uh, laser uh, spectroscope, and they try to get him back. But what they also find out is Jennings' body is slowly starting to be, start being Jennings and start being these dark lords of the universe. It still Jennings' body. He doesn't change, but he starts acting differently, starts acting evil. And I'm like, this uh, issue of uh, Howard the Duck, um, it, it, it reminds me a lot about the movie. So it's just like, if you haven't seen the movie, you know, it's a great thing about, uh, like, especially older movies nowadays, if you have uh, cable services, sometimes if you do a search, um, they may be a movie free, or you might have movie channels, like you might subscribe to movie channels. In fact, if you subscribe to the movie channel right now, um, you can watch Howard the Duck the movie. You can, uh, it, it's on demand. I was doing a search for it this afternoon. Also, if you subscribe to, um, like, uh, I, I didn't check Prime, I didn't check um, Hulu or Netflix. It may be on one of those too, but I know specifically it's on the movie channel this month. Uh, I would highly recommend checking it out. It's, you know, Howard, just watch it once. It, it's worth one watch. You know, I, I remember, um, seeing this movie in the movie theaters. That's how it, I think it came out in 86. And I didn't know what to expect of it because let me go step a step back. So if you've listened to the podcast for a long time, you've known I've collected the individual Howard uh, the Duck comic books uh, when I was very young. And the reason why I bought them is I started getting into my a local comic store that I would go to. And at the time of uh, when I was collecting, they had this huge back issue room, and it had all these, uh, you know, issue. They had some Silver Age stuff, and they had some bronze, bronze Age stuff, and I was like, "Wow, this is cool!" And I was like, "I'd like to buy, uh, you know, older comics, so I could read more of the history because we didn't have the internet back then. And if you wanted to find out more about a character, you'd have to find out the appearances that the character was in. And I found out about Howard the Duck. I was like thirteen years old. And so I decided, um, do they have back issues of Howard the Duck? So I went, I checked, and they did. They had a, I think they had the whole series. I, I'm pretty sure I bought the entirety because the the first Howard the Duck series uh, was only 37 ish, issues, I believe, around that. And all the the like Howard the Duck number one was probably five dollars. This is five dollars in like you know the 80s, so it wasn't that a crazy expensive. And then each. Um, issue after that was probably like a dollar or 60 cents. You have to remember the cover price for these comics were 30 cents. And so they were just given like a little bit of an upcharge to them. And again, this is the 80s. So it wasn't, the 70s was only 10 years ago. 
So it's, it's like uh, going into your comic book store now and saying, like, you want to buy uh, a comic from early 2000s. You, it probably, unless it's like something that's really sought after, you're probably not going to pay a lot of money for it. Uh, and you, you'll probably just pay a little bit more than what the cover price was. And sometimes you get it for cover price. And that's what I was, I got the, some of the, more towards the end of the series, I got them for more of, um, like close to the cover price, like 40 cents, 50 cents. So I, I bought them all. And, you know, when you're 13 years old, you're reading them you're like, oh, this is funny. Look at these characters. I'm not really getting a lot of the subtext yet because, you know, I haven't gone to school. I mean, I'm going to high school, but I haven't gone to college yet. I haven't, I don't know anything about these Western philosophers uh, that, that uh, Gerber is trying to channel and put into these situational um, uh, comics, <laughs> you know? And the funny thing is, is um, as, as I talk, as we're going to talk a little bit more about these characters that, uh, Gerber will go on, you know, he'll have a falling out eventually with Marvel and about Howard and the way that Howard is treated. And he'll um, not work in the comic book industry, but he'll work in the television industry, so writing sitcoms. And you kind of get that, that that's where he was kind of going when he was first writing. And maybe it was just because he was new to the craft of writing comics is he was going by what he knew about. So he knew television, he knew funny characters, um, let's put them in situational comedies and see what happens. Now, the uh, the rest of the the issues that I'm going to be covering, I'm going to do kind of more briefly, talk about them. The next one is issue number three, uh, which was enter, um, is Quack Fu, uh, where Howard learns Quack Fu. And the whole premise of this particular issue is, uh, during the 70s again, um, Martial arts films like Bruce Lee films, Enter the Dragon, uh, Kung Fu, the television show. These were super popular. And in fact, we we talked about that stuff like late 70s, early 80s. Um, so late late 70s was martial arts and Kung Fu. Early 80s was ninjas, everything ninja. American Ninja, The Last Ninja, Ninja Video Games. Um, it, that was like all that that was in movies and television uh, at the time for young uh, young boys to watch, and so like at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the uh, that that was more of kind of like a kind of a pun, a funny thing that came out of the eighties. Uh, but it again, if it's with the theme of of ninjas, and so in the third issue, Beverly and Howard go into the movies and they go watch. Uh, a kung fu movie like enter the dragon and they come out and um how it's complaining about the violence and then beverly's trying to calm down saying like you know it's just a movie how they those guys didn't really get hurt and he's like well this is kind of understand i understand why how your society behaves it's like you get all riled up he's like look at these kids and then the rest of the comic is like you see kids like doing kung fu on each other and whacking each other and as the comic progresses um, a, a man comes in and he's like the macho Kung Fu man. And he, uh, beats up some kids and he nearly kills a kid. He has a, like a, a couple of henchmen and they nearly kill a kid or they stab a kid. In fact, I think. And so Howard's like, and, and he walks away. So Howard's like, I'm going to get revenge. Just like in these movies, I'm going to chase down the man who hurt this young boy. And he has to learn Kung Fu. So he looks in a comic book about like, where can I learn Kung Fu? And it, he finds out a name in, in, that's in Cleveland. 
and he's looking and looking and he turns around and then mystically appears a kung fu um uh, karate dojo and he goes in and he learns the art of quack fu uh and, and he goes and he finds the the kung macho kung fu guy and they have a duel and he accidentally kills the macho kung fu guy because they have a duel on top of a roof and the guy overjumps Howard and he falls off the roof and dies. And he goes, I think it was just war, uh, just uh, because the kid who they stabbed, he later died at the hospital. And so he was, he finally got revenge for the the dying kid. And uh, so it, that was kind of more kind of straightforward, uh, but it did have kind of like um, a philosophical ending uh, to it. And uh, that one was the, that particular issue was done by Sal Buscema. Uh, so he's, that's a great thing about this comic too. You're getting like these A title artists. Uh, you have Brunner, Buscema, and then for the next few issues, you're gonna have Gene Colan um, doing the rest of the the comic series, and um, his his artwork is fantastic as well. So then we get into issue four, and. Oh yeah, issue issue four has to do with uh, the Winky Man, and what does that mean? So Howard is uh, he's trying to get some sleep, and but there's a guy who lives above him in Beverly Beverly's apartment. There's a man that lives above who is like banging on the floor, knocking on the floor, and they can't understand why he keeps banging, and so they have to investigate that. Now, before we get into this any further, you're gonna hear a little bit of music. Thanks for putting up with that. So uh, they go in uh, upstairs to the apartment to see what all the commotion is about. And they, uh, he says, he says, oh, I know this apartment. Uh, I know the guy there. He's kind of like uh, spacey, weird. He says, well, how are we going to get in? He's not answering the door. She's like, just try opening the door. He seems like the kind of guy that would rem- wouldn't remember to lock his door. So they try and guess what happens? It opens up. You find out that the, uh, the man who lives in there, his name is Paul Sane. He's an artist. And he is kind of like this really strange case of narcolepsy where um, he would fall. He falls asleep um, and he but he also like uh, sleepwalks. It's narcolepsy plus sleepwalking. And so he's asleep, pounding the floor, knocking on the floor. So Howard um, tries to wake him up. He won't wake up. So he kicks him in the butt. And when he wakes up, he sees Howard and Beverly. So he sees Howard as a demon and Beverly as a maiden that needs to be saved. So he goes to attack Howard, and Howard's like, hey, and he knows quack foo, so he chops him, and not he finally wakes him up. Uh, and Paul Same goes through um, his story about how he was kind of an over, an underachiever. Um, he was very, he's very smart, very intellectual, um, but he would find himself falling asleep in class. He would, and then it goes on to say like he would find himself whenever he's confronted with something, he would start falling asleep. And, um, but, but really what was happening is, is that when he would go to sleep, this kind of um, personality underneath in the subconscious would start emerging. And it was this more aggressive personality. And that's the reason why, he was, even though he was sleepwalking, he was attacking Howard because it was this aggressive personality that was coming out. So he he comes around to say that he's not very good at confrontation, and um, and that's why he's not a very good artist because when he would take his sh- um, art to art shows, 
uh, he would get these critiques that he just couldn't keep up with it. So he doesn't, he decides he's not going to show anymore. So Beverly kind of talks him out of that because she sees some of his work and she's like, you're a very, you're an excellent, you're a talented artist. You should do this. And as um, the other thing I, I, I wanted to mention is that Howard was trying to go to sleep by reading uh, Hegel, and uh, which is a German philosopher. And uh, if I remember accurately, which is probably not accurate because this is comics misremembered, we don't remember anything um, accurately here. I don't even remember which buttons I should hit to hit to hit the uh, the the appropriate sad trombone sound effect. I hit the wrong button to begin with, and uh, so he's reading Hegel, and um, one of the things that he's known for is uh, duality, dual. So the spirit and the consciousness, and how they sometimes you have to work together to get them to work get on them on the same page. And that's part of like what's going on with um, Sam, uh, Paul Same, uh, in this one, and so the rest of the issue is when uh, Paul goes to sleep, he wakes up as uh, this character called Winky Man. So I guess I, like w Winks asleep is a sleep reference, and um, he fights crime. He's you know he's fearless, full of courage. Uh, sees the evildoers. This is almost like the Winslow and from the comic prior, and he's uh he he has a candle. He has a um, a bed shirt, a, a bed cloth, or what do they call that? Like a bed shirt. The winds like a one shirt that covers your whole body. It's almost like a dress, and a long sleeping cap, and a candle. Um, so just like what you would see in like uh the old timey comics when the man is going to sleep, he has a little candle and you blow it out and. You, has this long hat and he covers and goes into bed. So Wingy Man wears this, and uh, so he's at night. He is a fighting crime in the day. He's doing art, um, but he's he also feels he's like so tired and he can't understand why he's so tired because he doesn't understand he has a subconscious personality that's coming out and fighting crime. And I'm reading this and I'm like, this like is, it sounds a lot like well this is spoilers if you've never read the book or seen the movie, but it sounds a lot like Fight Club. <laughs> And that's and that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I'm not gonna say anymore. Go if you haven't, you know the the book and the movie are what close to thirty years years old now. Uh it, it that's what it reminded me of instantly. And um, so ultimately, how this uh, issue winds up is that there's an art critic that comes out, and he gives a poor review, uh, saying this is like all oh, you've seen seen before. Uh, there's nothing new here, nothing new under the sun. And that's another thing about uh, Hegel is that um, he was uh, art. He, he believed in art. He said that art spoke to people. It wasn't um, just something there to be admired, but we have to learn from the art that we, that's, that exists out there because it's saying something. You have to take something away from it. And uh, he gets critiqued, and he can't put. He's like, I can't. Paul Same, the artist, I can't. Uh, you know, take this critique. And Howard says. Stick up for yourself, man, you know, and, uh, you know, tell that guy off. He's like, you know, my, merge your minds, merge that uh, personality that's super aggressive and tell that critic what for. And he does it. He merges the, the minds together and uh, the aggressive side of him goes over. There. He says, hey, I'll tell you something. You don't know what you're talking about. He's like, who would listen to you? And he rips, he's wearing a wig and he rips the wig off of the man. And he's like, look at you. You're, you're not even... You're afraid to show your own face, your true being, because you're wearing a wig. 
And um, he's like, oh, and they, so the art critic pulls off, he's like, oh, this was a part of um, a modern art, uh, you know, live art. And he's like, yeah, go with it, boy, and we'll make, you know, millions of dollars. And so Howard's like, look, this guy, uh, help this guy out, and he's going to make, he's going to be a millionaire now, and what do I get out of it? Nothing, not even a cigar. And that's how that particular issue ends. Then we move on to issue five, and this is a Gene Colwin again. Uh, and this goes, Beverly starts by saying like, oh, we have no money. Um, I don't have any modeling gigs that I've gone through. It's like, I got 50 cents to my name. And so Howard um, says, she says, here, Howard, here's 50 cents. Why don't you go to the store and buy us uh, two Snickers bars? And that'll be our dinner for tonight. <laughs> so Howard's like, yeah, sure thing. So he goes to the local store and he sees a... Um, a comic book on the rack and it's like a Daffy Duck comic and he starts reading it and he sees the the, the in the panels of the comic the duck is fi fighting a bear and he tricks the bear the Daffy Duck character uh, sees the bear and he says hey I'll come over here I'm over here bear and the bear jumps at him and he tricks the bear and the bear jumps off the cliff and Howard gets steamed at this because he's like oh this is a misrepresentation of, of how ducks behave it makes us look like we're creeps that want to hurt people and he starts throwing the comic on the floor and stamping on it. And the store owner sees him and says, hey, you got to pay for that comic book you're, that you've just ruined. That's going to be 25 cents. Oh, I was like, okay. And he says, oh, here, I want this candy bar too. So he goes back and Beverly's like, oh, did you get the, the two candy bars? And he's like, no, I only just got the one. She's like, what happened? He's like, ah, well, I got razzled and I destroyed one, one of these comic books. And so she's like, you know, this, and he says, ah, I, you know, I've got to earn my keep. I've been here for a month in Cleveland. Beverly, you've been sharing your apartment with me. Uh, I am going to go out and uh, start earning my keep. And so he starts to try to look for jobs. And the one of the uh, first jobs, he, he goes to a TV studio because he thinks he can get a job on TV. And they bring him in, and it's like this Howdy Doody show. So if you don't know who Howdy Doody is, he was this um, man who would dress up like a cowboy uh, there would be children in the audience, and there would be a puppet, Howdy Doody, and it would be like a you know, kid's show. He'd tell some jokes with the, with the puppet, and then they would play a cartoon, and then there'd be more jokes in the cartoon, and that was the format. Then the kids would have, laugh and play. And so there was this, uh, and also there was Bozo, too, and I guess this is kind of more riffing on Bozo, who was relevant at this time. And um, he sees the clown, and the clown throws a pie at him, and he gets steamed, so he beats up on the clown, and the kids get scared and scarred uh, psychologically scarred by this and it's it's on tv so he goes of course he gets thrown out of the um the tv studio and he's walking down the streets he's like okay well that goes my tv lucrative tv work what's what am i gonna do next and so this guy sees him he's like hey i saw you on tv this morning uh anybody who beats up on clowns is okay in my book hey why don't you work for me i, I run this crediting uh system um all you have to do is uh, track down these deadbeats that owe us money and um, you know, you'll get paid for it. And he's like, well, I'll do anything now, so I'll start doing that. And um, the the job system that he's working with is kind of like that uh, rent-a-center. Uh, well, it's it's the concepts like rent-a-center, where he would rent out television sets to people, and they have to pay a weekly fee for the television set. So it's a high-end television set, and they would pay weekly fee, and then they would eventually pay it off to own the television set. That's how Rent-A-Center works. Now, this guy works on a totally different and diabolical level. So what Howard, he doesn't understand, like, why would people pay for a television set? So he goes to see this the woman that he called, 
and she's um, got a house full of kids. And she's like, oh, she's like, I can't make the payments. And um, you're probably going to have to take that TV set away. And he's like, well, why did you get such a luxury TV if you can't make the payments? And she's like, well, it was my husband, but he ran off on me and he wanted to have a big screen TV. And now I'm stuck here with the kids and making these payments. And what's going to happen is the I make these payments on this TV. And by the time I pay the TV off, the TV will die on me because it's made of such cheap materials. And I'll have to go and buy another TV. And that's how they, they get you. And so Howard's like sees the scam out of it. And he's like, don't worry, miss. He's like, I'm going to take care of this. And um, you keep the television and you won't be harassed anymore. And she's like, oh, thank you very much. So that was uh, part of it. Uh, the other part of it is he quits that job, uh, of, of course, because he's like, he can't work with this guy who has no morals. And uh, he decides he's going to, he sees like a wrestling event. And he's like, I know Quack Fu. I can wrestle this Claude. I can win $10,000 if I beat this guy in a match. It's almost similar to if you're familiar with the original Stan Lee um, origin of Spider-Man. He wants to make, he just gets his spider powers. He wants to make money. So he wrestles uh, some guy in a ring and um, and he doesn't get the money, but the, the, the place gets robbed. And Spider-Man goes after the, doesn't go after the guy who robs the bank. Eventually that guy goes on to kill uh, his his uncle Ben, and as great power comes with great great responsibility, um, yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. So, uh, similar thing here, sort of. Howard goes to wrestle this guy. He's the guy's a big brute. He's more a animal than man, and they go fighting, and. Uh, he wins. He eventually uses quack foo on him and, and he bounces off. It was almost like a wrestling event and he bounces off the rope and he knocks the guy out. And he's like, um, I win $10,000. It says any man that can beat the crusher here will win $10,000. And then the, the guy's like, well, you're right. But the thing is, it's any man that can be crusher. You are not a man. You are a duck. So therefore you get no money. And I was like, burr, burr. and then that's how that issue ends. Now, the, after this, they decide that Beverly and Howard decide that there's no work or nothing for them in Cleveland, and they'd be better off going to New York. And so they go on a journey to get to New York. So they have, this is where issue six is, six and seven uh, roll into each other. It's almost, and that was the other thing too, is issues one through five were standalone stories. You can read each one. You don't have, you couldn't, you can read them in different order too, if you wanted to, because they were just all standalone stories. With issues six and seven, this is where we're starting to get a continuation of stories. As the series goes on, you'll get more characters that get reintroduced um, and more uh, longer arcing stories um, in the series. Now, I'm not going to go much further. I'm getting kind of the, to the end of the talking about the six issues. But what, one thing I wanted to point out was at this time, so about a year into the Howard uh, the Duck comic series, um, Marvel got a cease and desist from Disney. And what the cease and desist was all about is that Disney was put, putting out comic books too, and they were putting it out in international mar markets, and Marvel was doing the same thing. And in the international markets, um, the characters, uh, Howard the Duck and Donald Duck, um, couldn't translate well, uh, other than the American word duck, that was it. They didn't. They didn't. Ha they had different names. So when a child went to buy a Donald Duck comic uh, in an international market, 
they didn't couldn't see the difference between Howard the Duck, who looked v- not similar but not a hundred percent similar, um, because um, the um, Disney's duck uh, was Donald Duck. Uh, had he had a sailor's hat on, sailor's top on. He didn't wear pants, and um, and he spoke and he spoke, but it, like in the comic book, he spoke just like Howard. He spoke in word balloons. Howard was a duck who looked similar to Donald Duck, except he wore a fedora, he wore a sports jacket, he didn't wear pants, and he smoked a cigar. But children, looking at it, not knowing one or the other, thought they were both Donald Duck. And so this is where Disney thought they were losing money because they thought children in international markets would look at both comics and see Howard as Donald Duck, and they would buy that comic instead of buying this comic, and they'd lose it. So... Marvel wanted to settle out of court with them. And so what they, they said was, um, we want you to just make some mi- mi- minor modifications to Howard to make him differentiate him from Donald. And one of the modifications were, or a couple of the modifications were, smaller eyes, have him wear pants, <clears throat> and have him, instead of web feet, have him kind of toe web feet, almost like human feet, but in duck form. And Marvel said, we're going to do this. And Steve Gerber hated this. He hated that he's bow these that Marvel is bowing down to another corporation, um, and making these changes. He's like, Howard is totally different looking than Donald Duck. Anybody who looks at the two can see the different. They're different, and he's like, you don't have to make these additional changes for that. And I can't believe that you're going to do that. And because of this conflict between Steve Gerber and Marvel, this would go on for another year. And then that's why I said the. The comic then, they fire Steve Gerber, and uh, other people take over the book, but the book never has that same kind of the spirituality, authentic, authenticness as it had with um, Steve Gerber writing it. And uh, eventually Steve Gerber would be brought back to write uh, later Howard the, Howard the Duck uh, comic books, but I thought that that was re- really funny uh, that Disney um, was suing Marvel at that time. Now, ironically... Disney now owns Marvel, and the other thing that you'll notice is um, this, I'm sorry, Volume 2, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, you know there's a cameo of Howard the Duck in that movie. And um, if you saw what he looked like is, it looks like a duck, but he's wearing a full suit, a, a jacket, and pants. His eyes are small, not huge, and he has web-toed feet, more human-looking feet than a duck would have. And so the uh, movie is con- conforming to Disney's new rule. Now, later, uh, early 2000s, uh, Chip Zdarsky, Zdarsky and uh, Joe Quinones um, did a Howard the Duck. They actually did two Howard the Duck comic series. Uh, and I enjoyed both of them. And that was more of a humorous take on the character. Um, you know, not less of a philosophical take, but more of a humorous tone to it. And but the way that Howard looked, he was dressed more of the Disney style, and I just thought that was funny. Now, now knowing the behind the scenes of it, um, and looking at it again, I can understand why Howard looked the way he looked. He looked more human than he um, than the Disney characters. So I just thought that was a little funny. But if you never read the original Steve Gerber Howard um, the Duck, I would highly recommend picking it up, um, especially if you want to read some fun, funny stuff. I bought. Uh, the Howard the Duck Omnibus. Well, this is actually the complete collection. So, complete collection is uh, part one. It has the Man Thing uh, parts, and I believe it has the first 
16? Yeah, first 16 issues of Howard the Duck in it. Or 15 issues. So there's a lot of comics in, in this one. And you can... I bought this, I think... The cover price was $34.99. I think I got it for $20, maybe even less than that. And uh, you can you can buy it through, you know, Amazon's always a good choice. But go through your local comic store. You might be able to get it for the same price. There's other avenues, too. I mentioned uh, cheap, CheapGraphicNovels.com. That's a small company that specializes in graphic novels, collections, trades. Um, I would highly recommend checking them out. You could probably get it there for cheap. Um, if you, if you want to p uh, pick it up and I've ordered several things through that, uh, and again, we're not, I'm not getting any kind of funding from cheap graphic novels.com, but I've, I've had, uh, done business with them and I've received, uh, plenty of comics through them and they've all come through nice, no problems, uh, perfect mint condition. So I would highly recommend them too. All right. Well, we are, um, we're getting to the end of the podcast. I've been talking for about an hour. My voice is starting to go now. Uh, which usually happens uh, at this point. So thank you very much for um, taking the time to listen to me ramble on about Howard the Duck and my love for Howard the Duck. And um, for November, that's what I'm going to try to do. Like, uh, I love Howard the Duck. November is my birthday month. So I'm going to try to um, do, a for the next couple of weeks, do comics that are near and dear to my heart. They may have more humorous tone in them uh, than uh, the kind of the dramatic comics that we've been covering. Um, but that's what I feel like doing. And like I said, hopefully we can get John involved in this too. <coughs> Excuse me. So as always, you can get this podcast and all of our podcasts at comicsmisremember.com. And then you can get the links to all the podcasts and also get the links to our social media. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you in seven.